Well, Father, we thank you so much that you are here with us today. And we declare as one body that you are holy. You are holy. And we give you glory for all that you've done and for all that you do. You are truly mighty. You are truly holy. You are truly amazing in every way. And today we choose to honor you and to give you glory. Because you are holy in Jesus' name. Well, we want to welcome you to Spruce Grove Community Church. If this is your first time or your 500th time, we're excited you're here with us today. And today we are here to do one thing, to honor the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? So can we say this together? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Amen? Amen. So today, we come together as one family, choosing to honor him as our Lord. Because he is holy, he is amazing, he is awesome, he is healer, he is whatever you need today, that's who he is. And so today, we choose to honor him. Can we do that today? Amen? Amen? So let's honor him today. Declare it together. He is holy. It's the power of your declaration. He is holy. He is holy. He is holy. Declare it on earth as it is in heaven. Listen, the most powerful time for you to speak truth is when that truth is not self-evident. The most powerful time to say God is good is when you are not surrounded by the evidence of that. Anybody, anybody can say God is good when only good things are happening to them. But it takes faith. It takes faith to say God is good when all that's happening is the opposite. There was a time when Job thought he really believed God. He was doing everything right, and everything was perfect. He was rich. He was wealth beyond, wealthy beyond measure. His kids were great, houses, lands. And he said, God is good. God is my Redeemer. I will serve the Lord. And then he lost it all. And in the midst of losing it all, his wife even said, curse God. But he stood in the ashes of that moment. And he said, though he slay me, I will trust him. Though he slay me, I will trust him. I know that my Redeemer lives. The the solidifying the establishing of your faith happens when you feel nothing 
when all the goodness has fleeted, it's gone from your life. And you stand in the ashes and you say, on this rock I stand. I believe he is holy. Don't wait. Don't wait till you see the glory. Don't wait till you stand before the throne. Don't wait till everything's peachy and good. Do it now. In the midst of your storm, you glorify the Lord more than any other time when you sing this. I will love you, Lord my God. I will love you, Lord my God. With all your strength, with all your heart. Set your love on him now. You are the great king. You are the great Lord. Come on, let's praise him right now. You are the great king. You are the great Lord. And there is none like you. None in all the earth. There's a heavenly procession that's entering in. There's a procession of heaven. The gate of heaven is opened by the praises of his people. The angels of heaven are released by the praises and the faith of his people. Let the sound of procession. Whatever you're doing right now, don't let it be just in your mind. Speak with your mouth what you believe. If you believe he is Lord, say it. If you believe he is king, speak it. The big story recently has been a famous, but a famous worship leader who has left this faith. He said, what I believed before, I don't believe anymore. And John wrote about apostasy, and he said, he said, the proof that they were never with us is that they don't remain. There's a difference between being emotionally moved in a meeting and releasing actual faith. And when the emotions leave, and when the initial infatuation, and when the touch to your, your feeling-centered part of your being dwindles, can you still stand? Can you stand? I don't wish any ill to anyone who has fallen from their faith. It's a tragic thing. But their apostasy does not change anything. I know whom I have believed. 
I know who I've seen. I know he is alive. My Redeemer lives. My Redeemer lives. My Redeemer lives. And if you're here today, if you're watching on the television, and you're in a season of the dark night of the soul, when that initial infatuation of church is gone, where all of a sudden you saw that, wow, men are really imperfect, and there's bad people that come to church, and if all of a sudden the the feelings of being swept up into the presence of God and the, the swooning that happened in your in your in your soul because that song was sung and whatever it is, it's not there anymore. And you come to church week after week after week and you feel nothing. I say, Blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord. That's the time to make your stand. That's the time to say, I know my Redeemer lives. That's the time that you become established in the invisible. That's the time when a door can open and you can see into a realm that no one else can see. And that's a time when your faith either opens a door for you or you decide to close it. I say to you, stay the course. Let your mouth lead you. I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. Say it right from your living room. I believe, I believe, I believe. Speak it to principalities and powers. Amen. Well, we're going to transition, but I want want you to know that this moment is more important than you realize. Way more important than you realize. You know, Paul talks about, and Peter talks about, the trying of your faith, the testing of your faith. And the testing of your faith, it, it's, you know what it does? You know what it tests? Can it hold? Does it have any strength at all? Is there any purity to it? Is it really rooted in God? Or is it rooted in a, a passing feeling? It's up one day, down the next. Up one day, down the next. And if you're at that place where God is testing your faith, count it all joy. You know why? That is a promotion. That is a promotion. This last week, uh, I was in the Maritimes, and we did a meeting in St. John, and we went out to eat um, our, our team that was sharing, and we brought the musicians with us from the Eastgate House of Prayer, and um, a young lady was serving us our uh, our food, and, and out of the blue, what at one point, there's hardly anybody left in the restaurant. It was late. Somebody asked her, said, do you go to church? And she said, oh, actually, I, I, I've just started looking for a church. And so some, somebody else started asking her, well, what, kind of, what are you looking for? said, well, you know, I just, I just feel like I don't want to stay as I am. 
and, and I feel like I need God in my life. And so he began to share the Lord with her. And we asked her to sit down, and we prayed for her, and she began to weep. And the presence of God began to sweep over her soul. And she, her eyes brightened, and she prayed a sinner's prayer, and she was born again. And we saw the change in her eyes and in her face in that moment. And she just kept weeping and weeping and, come, and saying, you don't know how meaningful it is. Well, I think we do. But I said to her, we're all here today because we heard a sound because we had a need. We heard a sound of God our Father saying, I want you as my own. And that's that presence that touched her. She's going to experience that. But the reason for that is so that she could respond and then, in turn, draw near to Him. First, with the benefit of that feeling, and then without that feeling as she matures. You may be anywhere in the line between here and there, but what God is looking for is to establish you in faith. He said, faith is a seeing with another set of eyes that I want to give you. And again, if you are in that place where, man, I'm not seeing as clearly as I used to, then it's time to begin to praise God. It's time to begin to set your feet firm and say, all right, I'm settling settling in for my faith to be. I'm I'm deciding today. I'm deciding in whom I will believe. So, Father, thank you that the thing you began in us, whether we're like that girl and it's been very recent or whether we've been this a long time, thank you that you are faithful to finish that which you began. Amen. All right. Mute. Okay. Well... Ah, so good to be back. I think I was away 12 days. Uh, we were, so we were in Ottawa, and then Wendy and I went to visit some family in Montreal. Then uh, I flew to Moncton, and we did a meeting in Moncton. We did a meeting in Charlottetown. We did a meeting in St. John, and then flew back late last night. So, or not late last night, yesterday afternoon. But anyway, it's powerful what God is doing. So powerful. I'll share one testimony because, um, you know, there, there, what, what happens, the way that God works with you in your life is, is he brings you, gives you a, a, an experience. And that experience becomes a pinnacle moment. And what happens after that is you don't have that pinnacle moment anymore. But what happens is that pinnacle moment becomes a benchmark for something that God wants to bring you back to. The same thing happens in the natural, in sports, you know. What happens, what, what, what keeps you coming back to doing sports are pinnacle moments, right? You know, we go golfing with some guys, some, you know, poor golfers. But you make one shot in 18 holes, and that one shot will be the reason you come back again. Right? Amen. Yeah. <laughs> right? 
uh, you know, that's, that's, that's just the way it works. That's a pinnacle moment creates vision, creates expectation. It creates new possibilities. And so pinnacle moments, right, are standalone moments that you aspire to after that for a long time. And so what God does, how he leads you on in your Christian faith is you give you, he gives you a pinnacle moment, not commensurate with your maturity, not commensurate with your strength of faith, not due to anything you have done, but due to something that somebody else has done, but it creates in you a benchmark that you from that time look for. And, and, uh, what happens if you know anything about sports is that if you if you have a moment where you do something that's everybody goes wow I didn't know that you could do that eventually if you keep at it you can do that thing at will you know uh, are there any skateboarders here <laughs> yeah I mean this is skateboarding you know you you watch somebody else do something and you practice it and you do a version of that or some some one of the maybe five stages towards that trick, and eventually you get so you can do each of the stages at will, and then eventually you piece it together and you start being able to do that trick. Eventually, you know, maybe you land it once in 20, then once in 10, then once in five, and then four out of five times. And then as you move on, what you used to never be able to do, you can do at will. That's, that's how your faith's working. What you see others do, the point is, God wants you to get to the place where you can do that at will. And that's the way it works. So, for that's a a long introduction for a tiny little testimony. But, but, uh, uh, so, years ago, one of my pinnacle moments happened at the Expo Center, but it was called something else. It was called the Northlands. And it's still, actually, there's a sign on the yellowhead called the Northlands, but... John Wimber came to town and did an apostolic conference called an event called Holiness to the Lord. David Noble remember that quite clearly because the first time John Wimber came through town, he had an, a major deliverance at the Signs of Wonder conference, which you should ask him about. It was stunning. And, uh, but the next time John Wimber came through town, and I had heard of him, but I, I went to this event, and it was literally it was a, a watershed moment for me on so many levels, and I won't elaborate too much, except to say that one of the things that really struck me was that there was this atmosphere of the presence of God that marked me in terms of what I was looking for in the future. Now, relative to my journey, when it came to the gatherings, there was, there was, there was measures of the presence of God that were equal or greater than that Yet, they were different. Different. It's kind of like colors of the rainbow. The manifestations of God's presence are not just measured in intensity, but in flavor. Okay? You know, the flavor of the fear of the Lord is different than the flavor of the zeal of the Lord. And the flavor of the zeal of the Lord is different than the flavor of the fear of the Lord. And the wisdom of the Lord is another atmosphere entirely. Each one can come in increments of power. Okay? And so there's all these dimensions to the manifestation of God. 
And, uh, but what, what happened at that moment in that time is he had an apostolic team with him. I remember he had, there was John Wimber, there was Dr. John White, who ended up uh, mentoring me a little bit with my writing, walking with us in the gatherings. There was Paul Kane, who was a, an amazing prophet who unfortunately fell in his later life. And, you know, we're, we're hoping that he recovered before he died, but he died in the last couple of years. But there was um, Brent Rue. There was uh, Mike Bickle. Mike Bickle's still around, right? Heads up a fairly, fairly impactful ministry. Uh, who else was there? I, I can't remember some of the other names. But it was, it was a great team. Plus, they brought their own worship team. Now, they, they didn't have a dance team, which was, you know, unfortunate. They needed a dance team. The church wasn't there yet. But, uh, but I'm telling you, what happened in the room was there was this atmosphere that entered in, and it was a canopy. It was, like, it was like a tent of meeting. And out of that, I got a revelation that one of the things that I think God wants us to do is do events around the world where we bring apostolic teams and that there's a canopy of his presence. You know, when Israel was leaving... The, the, the land of Egypt, the land of their slavery, where they've been 400 years. Do you know what slavery does? Have you heard any testimonies about what slavery does to a, a group of people? I mean, it strips them of identity and capacity in, in so many ways. And so Israel, 400 years of slavery, they come out of that. And as they're coming out, what do they have? They have nothing except God and the manifestation of God in, in, in this tent. But the the presence of God would ooze out into... I mean, they, they followed the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, and the presence of God was in their midst. What they didn't realize is that there is always a residual effect of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. It's transformative. The presence of God is what changes you. That's why when, when we're saying, hey, read the Word of God. Read God's Word, because we're not just... It's not just about memorizing facts. It's not just about becoming familiar with stories. There's a residual amount of the knowledge of the glory of God that when you meditate on it, when you get it into you, it changes your internal wiring. I mean, David says this, how shall a man, uh, a young man, keep his ways pure? He said, by heeding to your word, by focusing on your word, by meditating, by thinking, by, by orienting around your word. It changes your programming. And so there was a presence, and I remember the quality of that presence, because I remember thinking, wow, there's something about this. And I, I couldn't put it all together at the time, but as I debriefed over the next 12 years, <laughs> because that's about the time length it took me to really begin to understand what was at work there, I began to realize that the, the worship songs were great. The songs themselves were wonderful. The musicians performing the songs were great. The singers singing the words were great. But there was something else that was coming through all of that that made it uniquely beautiful, attractive, and wonderful. And it was not the quality of the melody. It wasn't the harmonies. It wasn't the voices. It wasn't the musicianship. It was the presence of God manifest through through a, a, a variety of components. And I remember coming away from that and people talking about that event for years afterwards. You know, there's, there's certain moments, some of you were at Whistler at the first gathering in, in 1996. There were moments that you find, they, they become these, these benchmarks for your life where you think, something in that moment changed me 
set a course in me, marked me in a way that very few other things have. And so when I think about that moment at the Expo Center at the Northlands, it was one of them. Well, this week, as I traveled with Art and Dean Briggs from Kansas City and Kirk from the House of Prayer, and there was um, two ladies you, you don't know, intercessors, amazing intercessors, Nellie and Jane, and then the other, the other pastors, the other leaders, the other hungry intercessors, the other people who came from across the Maritimes to meet with us, there was, a, there was that similar atmosphere. There was that similar atmosphere. And I'm telling you, that excites me because I, don't, I can't remember what year that was, but that's got to be 25 years ago or more. And so that means that God marked me with an experience 25 or more than 25 years ago. And, and now I'm part of landing that experience on a regular basis. You are called to be a part of landing something of the manifestation of the kingdom of heaven on earth so that you can, you're first touched it by it by virtue of some people witnessing to you in a restaurant. You don't even know what it is. It makes you cry. It, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. And you start to lean into what it is. And then you have another moment and another moment. And then in between, there's these testings and trials. But each one is to keep you pushing onward and upward into experiencing more of him. Anyway, I could say a lot about that, but I tell you what, we are on a trajectory as the church, as the people of God. And I I don't care who doesn't believe. I care for them, but it doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect because I know that I know that I know that what seems intangible and invisible to others is absolutely concrete to me. And I'm so glad. I am so glad of the days of the trials of faith. I'm, I'm so glad for the dark night of the soul when God stripped me of every feeling where I was, I was hanging there. I remember seeing this, this, this poster of a little kitten holding on to a branch and just, you know, air underneath. And the caption said, faith isn't faith until it's all you have to hold on to. And I thought, yeah. I wish I had some of that. But here I am holding on, and I'm, I'm just like, I don't even know what's going on. I don't know. Nothing's real anymore. And the Lord was asking me a question. Will you believe? I was, I was touching your emotions to help you believe. I was giving you this moment and that experience and that eye-opening uh, uh, glimpse. And, 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 but now, has any of this landed in your, in your spirit? Is any of it solidifying in you? Or do you still need these crutches of external impulses to tell you who you are? Or do you know who you are? That you're a son of God. So whatever you're going through right now, man, desire this grounding. Because as you come through these challenges, you become unshakable in your faith. Immovable. But this isn't what I wanted to talk about today. So, ah, But I want to encourage you because some of the things that are happening in our nation are very exciting. And we are in unusual seasons. 
But I, I felt to talk a little something, and I don't know how well I'm going to hit this, so I apologize in advance. If you want a clearer explanation, uh, ask the Lord. But uh, years ago, when we first, when I first came into the church, you know, we were talking a lot about the battle, the spiritual warfare against a religious spirit. And the, everything revolved around Jezebel and the religious spirit. Now, that, that enemy still exists, but in many ways, in many quarters of the church, we have actually succeeded in getting some victories against that spirit. Now, let not a man think he stands lest he falls. So we don't want to assume that we'll never again be challenged by that particular spirit. But it seems in this day that the focal point of our training, and it is training, it is training. You know, you have everything, you, inside of you is everything necessary for life and godliness. And so it's all training to overcome the things that are out there. And so, but it seems like we are, we are shifting in general as a church to the place where God is shifting our focus to be able to overcome a political spirit. And so I want to talk about for a little bit what it means to be overcoming a political spirit. Now I'm not going to be able to dot all the I's or cross all the T's, but I'm just going to try and hit a couple of things. So can you believe with me? Yeah. Hallelujah. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. Now, let me say something about spiritual warfare in general before I touch on what the political spirit is. Spiritual warfare in general is, is about leverage. And that means this. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, the prince of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. He has nothing in me. What does that mean? That means there's nothing in me that agrees with him. In order for him to exercise authority over me, he has to have something that I want, and I have to have something that he wants. But when he comes to me, there's no compatibility whatsoever. None. No compatibility. In other words, I am not disposed to think like him. Remember, you remember when um, Peter had, had said, uh, told Jesus he wasn't going to go to the cross, and Jesus turned around and said, get, get behind me, Satan. For you, 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 the King James word was this, and it's, it's, it's a cool word, I think. It said, thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Thou savorest not. I have to figure that comes from, you know, the whole thing of taste, right? Savoring. You know, you don't have, you, you are not attuned to the flavors of the things that are from of God, but you are attuned to the things of the flavors that are of men. In other words, you are disposed to the way men think, but you are not disposed to the way God thinks. And so what happened is Peter, Peter was thinking in a particular way that Satan was disposed towards. Okay? That created a landing place for Satan in the life of Peter. To the point that, to the point that, you know, and Peter, did he have evil motive? Did he, was he in a demonic trance? Did he, you know, did he, he didn't, it wasn't like that. What was it? It was something very simple. He didn't want to lose Jesus. He was emotionally, soulishly dependent on the presence of the man. And Jesus was trying to disciple him to be dependent upon the Father, the Spirit, 
that was at work. The same way he was operating in the spirit, he wanted Peter to operate in the spirit. So it wasn't this vile, evil thing. It was just soulish. It was just emotional. Think about that for a second. Jesus, dependent on his friend, emotionally fixated on him for need, was the landing space on which Lucifer twisted Peter to resist the will of God. Anyway, we could talk a lot about that. But it was so profound that, that Jesus said, Satan, get thee behind me. Like this, Peter, you don't understand what you're doing here. This is literally the gate of hell opening up here. Which is kind of coincidental because the day before, just before that, he had, he had said, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And he said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Whoa! Right? High five. I'm the guy. You know? And so maybe, maybe even a part of what, what you know, facilitated Peter's boldness to say, this is what I think, is because he thought everything he thought now from now on, was going to be God. <laughs> anyway, the point is this, is that if a religious spirit's going to come and attack you, it can't just do what it wants to do. It needs a landing place. It needs leverage. It needs a door. It needs something to hook into. It needs, you know, and uh, the nearest, uh, the nearest example I can give is but one of the best, for those of you that are my age, is uh, from Back to the Future. And Marty, remember the character in Back to the Future? I heard some young kids talking about, oh yeah, this is a great series of movies called Back to the Future. And there, one guy's oh really? Describing it to the other guys, never heard of this. I'm thinking, oh man, <laughs> we are getting old. When 20-year-olds are talking about this as if, wow. Anyway, Marty was his character, and he kept getting goaded into things because he was afraid of being seen as being a chicken. And so somebody would challenge him to something, and he'd say, no, 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 I don't do that. What, what's the matter, chicken? And it was like, you know, he just, now, he was just brought into line, brought into line, just... Just that little, you know, bait, and he's, he's there. The enemy is always offering bait that's appropriate to the way you think if you think like him. That's why we're always trying to renew our minds. So there's less, he's got less material to work with. Another picture, if you, if you want, you remember Magneto in the X-Men movie. Magneto had the ability to manipulate metal. So... He was in, you know, his, when they caught him and he was in prison, he couldn't have any metal in there because if, you know, if somehow he had any metal, he could turn into, into ball bearings and shoot it at you. And so they had to make sure there was no metal in the vicinity and everything was graphite or plastic or something, I don't know, so that he couldn't get out. And because he had authority to do whatever he wanted with metal. Well, the, 
Satan has authority over certain things. He has, he has authority over lies because he's the father of liars. And if you have a tendency to lie, you are vulnerable to his influence. If you have, so whatever you have that's equal, that agrees with him is, is, is stuff he can manipulate to use you. So that's just the reality. So if we're going to have, why is this important? Because if we're going to over, be, overcome the religious spirit, we have to be free from what empowers the religious spirit. The spirit, religious spirit operates by certain tenets, uh, unbelief and fear, okay? It needs unbelief and fear in order to operate. If it has particularly unbelief, unbelief, unbelief gives room for the religious spirit to come in. Well, the political spirit is a little bit different. Political spirit operates almost entirely on the fear of man, the fear of man. And so if we're going to overcome the political spirit in this land, in our country, we have to overcome the fear that makes us vulnerable to a political spirit. So I want to talk for a couple minutes about some of these things. Um, Coming out of the as one, my friend Craig Broker in Calgary just gave a prophetic word at his church. He went back, he made it to his church last Sunday. Uh, And he, he shared about the prophetic being restored to Canada, that we've been in a, a 10-year sort of uh, shifting and sifting. And he said that the prophetic is now being restored in Canada. It's a, and it's a, it's a great prophetic word. But he cited this particular case of a person, a well-known prophet from some 15 years ago. And she was rising in the prophetic ministry in Canada. And uh, you know, and Canada's always been known as a place that the prophets are not welcome. Did you know that? <laughs> Kenneth Hagin is a, was a prophet. He's dead now. But he wouldn't come to Canada. And the reason why he wouldn't come to Canada, he said because the prophets were not accepted in Canada. And so there was no room for him to come to Canada. He's an amazing prophet. So anyway, in a, I can't remember if it was a dream or a vision, but this man appeared to her beautifully dressed, beautiful man. She says the most beautiful man she'd ever seen in a three-piece suit. And she pulled out a gun and she aimed it at her face and she said, I haven't missed, not one. And uh, the Lord told her after that to leave the country. You think, well, surely God is stronger than that. Yeah, God is stronger, but it's not about how strong God is. It's about whether the atmosphere of the kingdom of God has been established or not. You know, there's a reason why genocides happen one place and not in others. It's because in one place, the gates of hell are opened. In other places, Christians are, are pushing for the gate of heaven to be opened. When we are worshiping, we are literally opening gates. We are bringing in atmospheres that affect not just the people in the room, but the whole land. Imagine the atmosphere of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like air conditioning and churches all over Canada that are worshiping in spirit and truth are pulling down from heaven cooled air in order to create a different atmosphere. We, the church in a land, and the faith of that church in a land is is responsible for bringing an atmosphere that made them some things possible in this land that would not be possible elsewhere. So there's some things in the American church that the Americans have pressed into, leaned into, fought for, gone after, 
And because of that, they've, they've brought certain things of the kingdom of God that are accepted there, that are celebrated there and aren't celebrated here. But, you know, that's okay. We're moving on and we're going to conquer this thing because the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. So she had to leave the country or she would not have survived as a prophetic ministry in Canada at the level she was going. The Lord told her, if you go to the United States, you'll actually be able to affect Canada uh, from there more than you can right from here. And so I believe that that spirit that manifested to her was a political spirit. And I believe that the battles that we're facing right now, even what we're doing with the battles for Canada, have to do with the church of God rising up to confront the political spirit. And so, I mean, then that's, that's good news. But the question is, your ability to, to, to attack or defeat or overcome or be impervious to a political spirit it's kind of like, you know, Marty's ability to, you know, chicken? Yeah, whatever. I don't care what you think. I don't, I don't care what you think. Your words have no hooks in me. So the cornerstone of what a political spirit does, it leverages how much you care what everybody else thinks about you. Okay. So what happens, let me, let me read a couple of scriptures. Here's a, here's a foundation for this. Jeremiah 17, verse 5 to 8. You've heard this before, you know this, but maybe we don't know how significant it is because there are battles that we need to fight and for that we need a unique kind of faith and dependency on God. We've got to get to the place where we don't care what they think about us. So this is what... This is what God says through the prophet Jeremiah in verse 5. He says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Okay. He says it's equivalent to this. Whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. And conversely, he says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its root by the river, and he will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding. I mean, this is pretty strong language. Cursed is the man who leans on flesh. Now, we need to understand something about this. When it says cursed is this, it doesn't mean that God's saying, okay, watch it. You know, if you touch that thing, I'm gonna, you're going to be cursed. And my hand's about to come down. Ah! No, he's saying, listen, no. If you think this way, blessings will result because it's the right way of thinking. But there's laws at work, kind of like, you know, in nature, right? There's certain, certain seeds need sandy soil. If you put it in wet soil, it's not going to work, right? Cursed. It's, it's, it's not going to produce anything good because it's in the wrong place. And so God is not there punishing people. It's like, okay, who, shall I, who can I whack a mole today? 
It's not the way it works. He's saying, listen, posture yourself this way because when you posture yourself, this blessings come to you. When you, when you lean on the arm of flesh, you get the arm of flesh. And it, when you lean on the arm of flesh, you get the arm of flesh. And what the, the arm of flesh can produce is nothing good. It just produces death. But if you lean on me, you get all the things that I have. That's why this is blessed and this is cursed. Not because anybody who does that, I'm, I hate. No, it's just this is how it works. So that's why the apostle, you know, Joshua said, choose this day which way you're going to go. The blessings or the cursing. You choose. This way doesn't work. This way works. So we got to have a different mindset. But let me read another scripture here in a second, and I'll, I'll tell you the story first. I began writing an article a few weeks ago, and I'm gonna, I'm, this is going to sound like meddling. I began writing an article because I've seen a phenomenon in the body of Christ you know, for as long as I can remember. And the phenomenon is people who come to other Christians and complain and murmur about other Christians. And they always do that. And you know what? If you don't know the people, and if you don't know the story, and somebody comes and says, I was wounded, I was hurt, they, they took my house, they kicked me out of the church, and they did nothing wrong. You know, and they tell you fantastic stories of great evil. You know, it's like, well, who would make up a story like that, right? It's, it's really hard to, to get past that because... Yeah, you know, you've already recognized that Christians aren't perfect. You know what could happen? You know, bad things have happened to me. But what happens is is people do this. And I'm not saying everybody's evil who does this. I'm not saying everybody's deliberately divisive. But there are people that always come, and their purpose is to divide. Their purpose is always to divide. And they come to you saying, that church down the road... They were not nice to me. Oh, but this church is a lot nicer. Let me tell you what the reason that posture is taking. It is to divide you from them. That's the first. If you, if you accept the premise on which they come, that's the first thing you do. The first thing you do is t- try to distance yourself from the ones that did it wrong. And you know what happens time and time again? I know Christians, a lot of Christians make a mistake. Time and time again, I've discovered that the ones who are going from church to church to church, whispering about how bad they have it, I'm thinking, and I've, I watch and I thought, oh yeah, well, they were here two months. wonder what they're saying to the next church. There's a family some time ago that, that came to a church that I knew and uh, lived free of charge in, in one of the people's houses for a year. And then all of a sudden, they came, went to another church because, well, they were kicking them out. And you know what the story was? Well, they just, they just don't really love there. Not like here. Oh, oh, you guys are so good. Let me tell you, the power of a political spirit is in its power to divide you from your brother. And the leverage it has is whether you want to be liked or not. Because when that, when that silver tongue comes to oh man, you are so not like other Christians. Well, why, thank you. I knew that, but um, I feel they have a lot of wisdom. 
you know, they, I feel some real discernment on these people. I'm, <laughs> I'm telling you, we are, it's like, it's like, what is that, shooting, shooting fish in a barrel? Sometimes we as Christians, when it comes to the political spirits, like shooting fish in a barrel. We are so eager to be liked. We are so attuned to whether we are of good reputation or not. And yet, you know what? And I was going to read it at the very beginning. Luke 6.26. This is what it says. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so they did the fathers... There did their father so so sorry for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Think about that. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Now let me ask you, and I'm not going to look for a show of hands. But how much? How many of us work hard at being liked? How important is it that people like you? When somebody says they don't like somebody else, how quickly do you distance yourself from that person that is not liked? Yeah, Kim Wheeler, right away. <laughs> you see, if we are going to overcome the political spirit, we've got to be free from, from the hooks that it always hooks into. So I had started writing an article, and I was trying to find a title for it, and I, I started with this. I thought something like, Dear Deluded Christian, you've partnered with Satan. You know, something along that line. Something, something you know, ease my way into it. <laughs> something encouraging. <laughs> But I didn't really, I, I wasn't, I was meditating on this. I started writing the article. But when we were in Hong Kong, one of my friends from Switzerland shared in one of our sessions, we were up in the, in the lounge, the business lounge one night. We were having a little snack together. And there was this guy that was sitting over from us. Um, he was kind of drunk, Australian guy. And he starts, hey, what are you guys doing? You know, it's like we're talking, you know. Uh, well, we're here with a conference. Oh, okay. You know, after a while. So, like, are you guys from Australia? You know, and after a little while, I was getting tired, it was getting late, and this conversation was going nowhere because this guy kept interrupting. So I, I left, and my friend stayed. And what happened is this guy said, well, I, he began to witness to him. You know, not being the evangelist, I, I decided sleep was more important. <laughs> anyway, he, he was sitting there, and he starts to say, well, you know, we're actually ministers, and we're here. And, and then the guy, his face changes. He says, he says, my sister was molested by a priest. And he was about to, he was about to say, oh, you know, that's, that's terrible. That's horrible. And the Holy Spirit spoke to him. He said, he said don't side with the accusation." Don't come in to, to, don't side with the offense. Not that the thing wasn't wrong. And eventually he, he, he made a point to say, but he said, but you know what? 
That's my brother. And what he did is, as he felt convicted, he felt the Lord say, do not separate yourself in this conversation from the one that's being reproached here. Take on his reproach. Own the sin of your brother. And as he's sharing that, there's just a sense that, okay, there's something here around this that's deep. Something, something in this was quite profound. And as, as I talked with him later, I said, listen, I've been writing an article on this very idea. And one of the scriptures I have, and let me read this to you, and let this go in. Let this go in, because there's a challenge here. And again, I'm, I'm not saying, God forbid, we would ever tolerate sin, and we don't tolerate sin. But you know what? Uh, there's a line that we have crossed again and again and again and again, and it's not because we're not tolerating sin, but it's because we want to be liked. We want to be liked so bad, we're willing to side with an accusation, whether it's whether it's founded or unfounded, whether we know the people involved or, you know, just out of hand. You know, it's how people are growing their churches. I don't want to do that. I don't want to sow division into the body of Christ. Because I believe that if we can win this battle, let me tell you, if we can win this battle, we're going to set ourselves up for a kind of immunity and a kind of capacity to stay united that we've never known before. And right now, let the Holy Spirit, Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask that you would begin to find those places in us that would cause us to distance ourselves from our brothers immediately. Lord, unconsciously, immediately, without excuse. We run from our brothers. We run for cover. We're wanting to be the good cop all the time. This is what the Word says. Psalm 15, verse 1 to 4. Lord, who may abide in the tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart and does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his brother. Look at the next verse. Nor does he take up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised. But he honors those who fear the Lord, and he swears to his own hurt and does not change. I mean, to me, when I read this, it's self-evident, but let me try and throw out some of the features here. He He does not take up a reproach against his friend. The political spirit, the political world dominates the landscape of the political spirit. If we're going to have any real authority in the political realm in this nation, we've got to get fear, rid of the fear of man that causes us to always take up a reproach against our friend or our brother. What it, what it means is that the political spirit is skillful at using your self-preservation to leverage you against your friend. Without even, I mean, the, the words, there's witchcraft involved, there's, they're, they're loaded words, but they, 
Immediately, if you have any impulse, any need to be liked, as soon as a reproach is brought onto somebody, the tendency is to want to distance yourself. That's, that defines the political world. There is no honor in the political world. There, there's no honor in political parties. You see this all the time. You know, right now, today, you got, you've got decent people in the political world, and somebody, right, you know, they say something that maybe is just slightly, slightly off and maybe not even, not even wrong, but just it can be construed as wrong, and immediately the party are like, yeah, we're, we're banning them from the caucus, and we're, we're doing this and this and this and this. Why? Not because it was actually wrong, but because the appearance of wrong might erode our political power. Because political power within our world depends on being liked. How many people like me will determine whether I get into office or not? You see, what happens is that system is not just in the political system. That system became a political system because that system exists in the heart of men. And the leverage that a political spirit uses is because there's part of that system that's in our hearts. And so here's the question. If one day somebody came to you and said to you, oh yeah, you're a good friend, so-and-so. Just think of somebody you know really well. Did you know they were a pedophile? Did you know that they molested my daughter? Did you know that, that it's like, you know, how would you put your future on the line for that brother? Or would you immediately in your heart kind of Even if you thought, no, it's impossible. I've seen it happen. Even when you know it's not possible, your heart still steps back from people. What is that? That is not a natural dynamic. That is a spiritual dynamic because a spirit is leveraging your need to be liked to create division. Does this make sense at all to anybody? Okay. So, coming back to the scripture, nor does he take up a reproach against a friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised. They're saying, listen, the one who's bringing the reproach is the vile person. And they're despising your friend, but they come in such a way with with complimentary words for you and condemnation for them in the hopes that you need to be liked by them that you need to distance yourself from all wrongdoing, that you need, you are, you are so busy in ministry, honestly, churches are, have such a bad rep- reputation for this. That's why I refuse to do it. When somebody, when I came to this church and there was a young leader, he was aggressive, he was difficult, he, was, he had a lot of rough edges and some of these voices came to say, you know, you need to do something about him. You know what I did? Nothing. You know why? Because it wasn't sin, it wasn't evil, it was immaturity. You know, when somebody comes to you and is actually wanting to eviscerate your child because they're four years old and they want them to act like an adult. Now, I know there's, there's appropriate places for discipline and there's appropriate meetings when children should be making noise. And not, that's not what we're talking about. When somebody comes after your kids 
Do you? Yeah, I know. He's a real jerk. Do you do that? No, because you're, you're knit together. You will not take up that reproach. Now, if you know that they're guilty of that thing, you're already disciplining it. But even in that case, like I had a friend one time who wanted to discipline one of my kids. And, and I said, no, not because he isn't guilty of what you're saying, but your discipline of him is not to help him. It's to convenience your life. And so I can't trust your heart towards him. So I will not separate, stop covering him. Can you cover your brothers and your sisters? Well, you know, I can do that for this one. Can you do it for a church in Stony Plain? Can you do it for a church in Grand Prairie? And it's not that we're ignorant that mistakes aren't made, but I'm not in my heart going to allow myself to be divided from the body of Christ. He is me and I am him. I'm not going to take up your reproach. You see, when Jesus came and bought you, he bore your reproach. He took on your reproach. That's what he did. He said, I will take on and go to the cross and bear the, all of your reproach. So how is it? How are we going to measure up when the context of a body, some slithery tongue moves in and says that, you know, that, that Diana, that Darlene, that Cam, that, you know, just... How quick are you to... Yeah, I know. It's so annoying. How badly do you want to be liked that you're willing to crucify your friend, your brother, your sister, instead of bearing that reproach? Saying, you know, I love them. I mean, that should be the first... Drawing near, if you want to overcome the political spirit, drawing near to somebody who's being reproached by an accuser will be the first step to overcoming. There's no other love than this, and I lay down my life for my friend. And that laying down of your life starts with your reputation. And if you can't bear a little... And who are these people that come around whispering about people that we love? Who are they? Is that love that compels them to do that? Right? What, what if there's, a, what if there's a, a plateau? What if there's a quality of love that we could step into by bearing the reproach of our brothers, by laying our lives down, by not loving, by not... Jesus made himself of no reputation and was identified with sinners. My sin. Your sin. And he says, follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Years ago, John Wimbers was asked, and I was at the expo, it was that event I was at. He was asked, it was a pastor's meeting. He was asked, 
what's the greatest quality that's needed in the church today? And he said, courage. Courage. There's something here I think is deeper than I can articulate, but I believe just the seed of it is the beginning of something that could make us immune to the kinds of spirits that have brought destruction to the body of Christ, that have moved into vicinities like ours and destroyed churches and turned brother against brother and sister against sister. There's a love that will make us entirely immune to that. Not ignorant of each other's weaknesses, but able to cover one another. Not excuse, cover. Because we call one another to accountability, but it's out of love, not out of a need to protect my relationship. I can't tell you how many times I've watched pastors and leaders in the church and elders position themselves, not because they cared about righteousness, but they were covering themselves politically. We are not going to do that. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would teach us what it means to bear the reproach of our brothers. Father, to swear to our own hurt, to covenant, to come alongside to our brother and sister to our own hurt. Lord, that whisperers will no longer find room in us because we don't care who likes us. We're looking for you to be pleased, Lord. There's power in this. There's a weaponry in God. Father, do it in our midst, I pray. In Jesus' name. Now, I don't know what time it is, and I don't know how close we are. What? It's 10 after. Okay, we, we, because we got the, the pancake thing, we'll have to go. But, but you know, maybe, the, maybe I'll dismiss now. And the worship team could come. And if you want to, you know, I, I know there's some of you that resonated. You've distanced yourselves from people. Looking to be the good cop all the time. or the, Looking to be liked. Or looking to increase your market share of likability in general. Repent from that. We've all been guilty at some point. We've all been taken in. And we're saying, God, remove the stuff in me that gives that spirit leverage. So worship team, why don't you come? Or actually, just a piano. Just a piano. Or do we want a whole band? Piano. Somebody? All right. Let's stand together. So if you want to come forward or if you want to just do this in the, in the, in the privacy of where you're sitting, you can just do it. All right. Father... We say in the name of Jesus. Father, we repent, God, for not being able to bear the reproach of our brothers. Father, I pray, I pray, God, that courage would come into our hearts, that a kind of loyalty that we've never known, a fearless loyalty towards one another will come into our midst, Father. In Jesus' name, no longer will we be seduced by flattering lips and an accusing tongue. 
Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, break the power of the political animals that come to try to exploit your body. Father, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, bless you all.